Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books across a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Joël Proust, Director of Research at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. Her new book, The Philosophy of Metacognition, Mental Agency and Self-Awareness, is just out from Oxford University Press. Metacognition is cognition about cognition, what we do when we assess our cognitive states, such as, for example, whether we remembered a phone number correctly. In this erudite and comprehensive volume, Proust considers the nature of metacognition from a naturalistic perspective, drawing on recent psychological research, as well as a range of philosophical work in philosophy of mind and philosophy of action. She defends an evaluative or procedural account of metacognition over a meta-representational account as the most general kind of metacognition, available to at least some non-human animals as well as humans, and she holds that the more familiar mind-reading view is a distinct, more sophisticated capacity that humans also possess. Proust also defends an intriguing view of mental agency and the epistemic norms that govern mental action, and she considers the implications of her positions for some cognitive disorders associated with schizophrenia. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Joël Proust. Are you with me? Hello, Carrie Figder. I'm with you. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. Uh, I'm very pleased to be talking about your uh, new book, The Philosophy of Metacognition, uh, Mental Agency and Self-Awareness. Um, and uh, just to tell our listeners, uh, Joël Proust is the director is a director of research at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris, um, and this is her her latest book out from Oxford University Press. Um, let me just start the interview. If you could tell us a bit about how uh, about your own sort of research career, um, how you got into philosophy and into this uh, topic. Well, I, res- I, I initially uh, studied history of logic and philosophy of logic, and then I had a stay in Berkeley uh, in the USA that uh, really oriented my work towards philosophy of mind. It was the great time of the Sloan Foundation and the work in cognitive science, and it was absolutely fascinating. And from then on, I concentrated first on intentionality, and I published a book in French on this, and then philosophy of action, uh, both uh, normal action and uh, impairments of action, which led me to mental action and from there to metacognition. So it's quite a direct link, I would say. Okay. Um, yeah, because intentionality, you know, the theories of representational of representation and mental content um, and agency both come together very nicely uh, in this book. Um, one of the things that I 
I wanted to start with was actually the preface. Um, so you remark um, in the pref- in the preface um, uh, regarding the naturalist methodology that you pursue, and this is this is a very contemporary issue, you know, sort of a pressing issue in the field of philosophy of mind, um, which has developed. Um, you know, it's probably become more pressing in recent years. Um, and you contrast the sort of naturalistic, more naturalistic view with a more, you know, autonomous view in philosophy of mind associated, as you mentioned, others do often with, with John McDowell. Um, so could you say a little bit more about the naturalistic perspective that, that you are pursuing in this book? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Quan's intuition that uh, philosophy uh, has to take a lot from science, especially when you are studying uh, beliefs and so on. I think it went too far in, uh, you know, in narrowing down the scope of philosophy uh, to an extent that it would be virtually disappearing. And I think the the reason he, he was so, you know, deflationist about philosophy is that maybe he did not realize that there is something in philosophy which is its methodology that cannot be found in other uh, disciplines. Uh, it's a methodological autonomy in the questions that can be raised in philosophy, the relation to evidence that is not mandatory in philosophy, and the kind of uh, inquiry that philosophers are able to conduct, like opening avenues. Uh, that scientists are not equipped to open and cannot even envisage. And uh, this methodological autonomy also uh, is present in the kind of generalizations that the philosophers can, can conduct and that, again, are based on conceptual methods that are not in themselves uh, familiar to Scientists. So I really strongly believe that there is a lot that philosophy can bring to scientists. And to give you an example, I think that the philosophy of action uh, of John Searle actually has been extremely uh, uh, influential in the domain of the scientific understanding of action. And so one can simply regret that no more openness to alternative views of action have been present in science. That's one of the problems in inter- interdisciplinary research. People tend to focus on one single theory that they master, and then they stay with it for, for 20 years. Right. But that's our role in philosophy to, to, propo- to make alternative proposals. Okay, so... Um... But and at the same time, to do so as you do here, um, looking at the relevant sort of psychological research that 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 you have, at least in this in this book. Um, so you begin by providing a what you consider a sort of neutral definition of metacognition as. Uh, and I'll I'll just quote that um, the set of capacities through which an operating cognitive subsystem is evaluated or represented by another subsystem in a context sensitive way, and that disjunction between evaluated or represented in a sense captures the two basic views uh, that are in contention here. 
uh, one that you trace to uh, Joseph Hart, among others, um, in which metacognition is a kind of procedural evaluation of our cognitive states or dispositions, um, which involves uh, or is akin to uh, the tote units that were proposed long ago by Miller, Galanter, and Prybram. Um, and as you put it uh, later, I think, the you state that the architectural hypothesis of the book or of the, of the view that you defend is that the mind is a hierarchy of control loops. Um, and the other view, uh, which you associate with uh, John Flavel, um, is the idea that metacognition is the representation of one's cognitive states. And that's a much more, perhaps more familiar uh, mind-reading model of, of metacognition. Um, so you, uh, well, why don't you lay out these two different views? You, you compare them along four different dimensions. Um, and that's probably the best way to start is to, uh, for you to lay out those, those differences between the views before we get to your defense of the, of the procedural or evaluative view. Okay, well, yes, I, I think that there are four dimensions that are relevant to distinguish these two kinds of views. Um, the first dimension is the explanatory scope. Uh, the John Flavel and uh, later people like Joseph Perner, for example, aim to explain both um, metacognition and mind reading in a single uh Way in a, using this notion that there is a theory of mind that is being used both to uh, control one's memory, for example, and to um, understand that others have uh, memorial states. And so the problem is that these people are just conflating. Well, maybe I anticipate on the critic. I will not. I will <laughs> stop here and go to the next the next dimension. The next dimension is uh, whether um, um, what is important in evaluation is something dynamical happening through some kind of feedback control or whether evaluation is a matter of propositions that are in particular of meta-representations that are directed to one's own actual mental processes when they are occurring. So that's the second dimension. The third is that um, is whether you need to expand or not the explanatory framework you use to include more or different forms of metacognition. Uh, in the evaluative mode, uh, if you choose that the first type of theories, then you do need to distinguish uh, elementary forms of evaluation that are linked, for example, to the feeling of knowing or the feeling of, of perceiving clearly from higher levels, such as uh, uh, meta-representing yourself as a good perceiver, which is a different form of evaluation. Whereas uh, in the uh, attributive sense, there is no substantial difference between these two forms of evaluations. They both rely on meta-representations. And the fourth dimension of contrast is whether when you perform a metacognitive evaluation, whether or not this should be associated with mental action. 
for uh, meta, the, the meta-representational attributive uh, theorists uh, deny that, and you understand why. It's because um, the same format is going to be used both for oneself and for others, and hence there is no particular advantage of being the one who mentally acts when evaluating one's own uh, mental outputs. Okay, so um, I mean, each of those elements, you know, gets uh, considerable, detailed, and and very interesting elaboration. Um, but let's you, you began to kind of it, it, with the critical part, and yes. then you stopped yourself. So, yes. so why don't we why don't we move right on to that? You you know, why do you you defend the the this dual view of you know? Well, yes, the dual right. view first, uh, it was first advertised in the very domain of the psychology of metacognition, where several scientists, leaders in the field, such as Asher Koryat and Norbert Schwartz, um, defended the view that you needed to recognize what they called experience-based metacognition versus analytic or concept-based metacognition, which means that in the experience-based metacognition, you did not need to um, rely on your conceptual understanding to form, for example, a feeling of knowing or a tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon. Whereas uh, when you do have concepts, then you use them in a kind of top-down way that allows you to draw a lot of inferences from the observation that you're a good or a bad evaluator, for example. You can decide that you should take a training in whatever to remedy your defects. A thing that is not open to the first level. The first level is very myopic. It's very short-sighted. It's only judges, um, or really not judges, but senses, I should say, um, the likelihood that a given mental action will be successful or not, whether it is perceiving a a, a difference or remembering a proper name, for example, this evaluative system is very short-sighted and uh, does not necessarily uh, lead one to make inferences. What allows us to know this is because monkeys, and I'm not speaking of apes, but even monkeys, uh, are able to perform this form of procedural metacognition while uh, everyone acknowledges that they do not have concept for memory, perception, and so on, and uh, still less uh, are able to infer any properties from uh, a conceptual characterization of their performance. So this is a very strong argument also. So that there is the psychology of metacognition, there is animal metacognition, and there are also features of of the evaluative performance itself that are very difficult to explain in meta-representational terms. Actually, there are dissociations between a performance that would be based purely on the self-observation while you are conducting an activity versus uh, a judgment that you would make based on your knowledge. Could you could you maybe um, provide a, a an example of the of the latter type that just to, just for concreteness? Useful, yes. Uh, a very well known experiment and uh, very important in this area 
is that performed by Koryat and Ackerman in 2010, where they ask subjects either to judge whether uh, a given participant who is engaged in a learning task will be able to remember his learning material. The learning material is a dual, you know, couple of words, couples of words that they need to memorize. And after each trial of couple of words, the observer is asked to say, is the subject going to remember this particular couple of words? Note that they do not know what the words are. They only see uh, the subject performing the task and how long it takes to perform the particular task. And what people do when they are in this observer condition is to predict that the longer a participant stays on a couple of words, mm -hmm. the better his memory will be for these words. And now uh, the subject is invited. It's not the same subject. In other condition, the subjects are invited to perform the task first. That is, they themselves are subjected to this very same task mm -hmm. and asked to make a judgment of uh, learning after each trial, after having studied. Uh, and they are self-paced. And that's a thing I should have told you also, applying to the other uh, part of the experiment. All these subjects are self-paced. That is, they decide freely when to stop learning. And now that they are performing the task, subjects use a different, a totally different heuristic. And unconsciously, they don't even know that they are relying on this. But the longer they stay on a couple of words, the least they think able to be uh, to remember this couple of words later on. So the idea is that when you are engaged in a task, you are receiving feedback from the task that you will be able to use to make predictions about success. Whereas when you are watching somebody else do the task and yourself have not been subject to the task before, then you will use your mind reading abilities to make a prediction. It's based on your concepts. But then the concept goes, well, you know, when you stay longer, you learn better. That's, you know, what you learn at school, for example. Right. But you forget that you are self-paced. And being self-paced, you, you have an additional kind of information that you don't have in a, in a, at school, for example, because there, uh, you know, the duration of, the, of, of work is fixed by the teacher. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, a very good uh, argument in favor of the fact that evaluating oneself for performance and watching another do the, 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 do the, the action and uh, evaluate it actually uh, rely on different, different stores or information. Okay. Um, so, um, well, let me, let's continue a little bit with the, with the evidence you mentioned, uh, monkeys, uh, some of the evidence with, from monkeys, uh, yes. for, yes, uh, for the, for the dual view. Um, and of course, I mean, this is not directly related to this, but you know, work with primates or, or infants, basically subjects that are, that plausibly lack any sort of concepts or at least sophisticated concepts and, and therefore are very unlikely to be able to do certain cognitive, uh, to perform certain cognitive functions that require concepts, you know, like 
meta representation. Um, so, so research on on macaques is 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 a general uh, weapon, you might say, against uh, views like I would say the representational view, which which seem to require require metacognition to involve much more higher level capacities than uh, than macaques would seem to have. Okay, could you uh, could you discuss some of some of that research? Yes, of course, uh, I'd be happy to. I think it's very important. In particular, now we have not only behavioral evidence but also neural evidence about what what is the case with uh, rhesus monkeys' metacognition. So first, we subject the animals to tasks that uh, uh, now have been discussed uh, really uh, very deeply for their methodological implications. But the idea is to give them a so-called opt-out task, uh, which allows them to say, uh, you know, the equivalent of, I am certain I can do this, I am I'm certain I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. So we have at least these uh, degrees of certainty that can be expressed by choosing to do the task because, for example, they feel they remember the task is uh, set up so, so that it's either their perception or their memory that needs to be monitored to do the task. And so the, the, the monkey will be able to either choose to do the task because he gets a reward or not, uh, not do the task because he would get a punishment if he's wrong. Uh-huh. And so uh, actually the, the methodological problem was that uh, a reward schedule would be able to um, be sufficient to explain the responses of the monkeys. So the researchers uh, decided to offer the the reward uh, every 10 trial for all the trials before. So there is no um, knowledge that the animal can use from the reward schedule to guide its decisions. So the idea if, is that if it's not reward, immediate reward that is uh, uh, reinforcing the animal into uh, choosing to do the task or not, it must be uh, the assessment of the difficulty of the present trial. Mm-hmm. And so um, there has been a lot of work being conducted in various species. And now there is this be- not only behavioral experiments that actually Monkeys are exactly as sensitive as humans to difficulty of a task, but we also have the brain correlates of their uh, mental activity while they're evaluating their perception. Uh, This has been done by Chadelaine for vision. It has been done by Kipetsch for olfaction in rats. Mm -hmm. And so we know exactly how the animal uses uh, various dynamic cues to appreciate whether he will be able to remember or to perceive uh, a, a relevant uh, target. So that's fascinating because it really changes completely uh, the notion we had of uh, how certainty is really uh, um, originating, which information, information is being used when you judged to be certain or uncertain. And it turns out that it's only these dynamic cues 
that are associated with the very beginning of the mental action when you start trying to remember. Here there is neural activity that has a specific pattern. If it's a neural activity for an activity that will end up being successful or if it's going to be end up being, you know, a failure. Uh-huh. So the, and the, the brain is able to predict its own success on the basis of these kind of patterns. So this is for the predictive uh, kind of thing when you are opting out. But it's also true for retrospective metacognition when you want or not to wager on your answer because you are not sure or you are sure that is that is the right answer. Mm-hmm. And here again, the, the 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 dimensions that are being used in the input information has nothing to do with the particular content of that information, but only on the way the brain is activated and has displayed uh, a capacity to converge to a, a single decision threshold very quickly or not. So these are very similar cues, different, but also dynamic cues that allow you to say, well, I'm right. This is the, the correct answer mm-hmm. or I'm wrong, of course. Um, okay. So you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned rats as, as, as well as monkeys. Um, so let me, let me just press you a little bit on the issue of um, the scope of metacognition on the evaluative view. Um, and the basic question is just how, how large is that scope? I mean, once you've once you've argued that you don't need to be able to represent your me- your mental states or dispositions in any way, uh, you don't need to do that to, for metacognition. Um, and you say that because non-human animals, at least some of them, are are able to uh, to do appropriate tasks that demonstrate some form of self-assessment of, of their cognitive states. How far does that go? Rats, does it go deeper? Does it go to, you know, other organisms? Does it go to the cell level? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing you, this is not in the book, but um, I'm just wondering how you feel about the extent of metacognition. Well, your question is, is very interesting, but also difficult to address because right now we are dependent on the actual empirical work that happens to have been conducted on this or that species. And negative results are so, are very often only, uh, you know, results that have been triggered by an inadequate kind of uh, task, for example, is the case for pigeons. And there is now the, the conviction that corvids in general should display metacognition. But for this, we have no, not yet any kind of uh, positive evidence. Um, now, concerning uh, other animals such as bacteria or cells, I mean, I have absolutely no inkling about that. Okay. Um, and there's another related question, I suppose, um, which is that of, of consciousness, which you don't, you don't really get into it. But to what extent um, do does does your metacognitive view maybe say something about um, a theory of consciousness, a procedural theory of, of consciousness? Well, there's two questions there actually. Um, one is 
whether <clears throat> whether it has an associated procedural theory of some sort of consciousness, and also the extent to which uh, the phenomena of consciousness, the experience of consciousness, um, is itself associated with uh, with metacognition. You know, how much metacognition does metacognition have to be have to be conscious? Um, uh, or does the creature who is ca- capable of metacognition have to be capable of consciousness? Well, this is again a very difficult question, in particular given the fact that metacognition doesn't have a uniform usage. And so you find theor- theorists like Axel, Axel Claremont, who has the view that uh, uh, consciousness involves metacognition, but by metacognition, he understands something like meta-representation. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly don't want to go this way, although I don't have particular views about consciousness, but what I simply uh, can say is that the procedural meaning, uh, the procedural kind of metacognition involves feelings. And one of the things we need to understand is whether these feelings need to be conscious or if there is any such thing as unconscious feeling, which is a possibility that had been already discussed in the philosophical literature by Ned Block, for example. So uh, there is a lot to learn here from science that we don't know yet, uh, which will allow maybe uh, to address these questions. But what I can say, I don't see any reason to say that there is more consciousness when you have a meta-representational ability than when you lack it. Uh-huh. Uh, having emotions in, in non-humans seems to be a very strong and uh, very prepotent form of information uh, to be processed. And I don't see any reason to say that they are not conscious of being hungry, uh, in pain, or certain or uncertain about something. There must be a form of, of consciousness here that might have the function of alerting the system of the present affordances. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, so speaking of information, um, in Chapter 6 you, you consider various um, theories of the concept of representation, um, of content, and you outline uh, two, basically two different forms of of representational formats. Uh, One is the uh, more sophisticated, more recent uh, propositional, um, and that these, I think, are used for uh, to form meta-representations. And then there's a more what you call ancestral and uh, uh, an an autonomous representational format, um, which involves uh, feature placing, and uh, which is basically feature-based. Could you explain these two different notions of of content and and also the fact that uh, even the the so-called non-conceptual featural representational system is itself guided by or sensitive to to norms? Well, yes, uh, this uh, dual format uh, was imposed on me by the realization that you cannot explain monkeys' feelings in propositional terms because they lack meta-representations, and that's 
for sure. So if they don't have meta representations in the usual sense of the term, then how do you explain, uh, how do you account for their sensitivity to a given norm, which is a norm of fluency? Fluency is uh, ease of processing. I mean, I, I know that for epistemologists, this doesn't look like a norm, but it's, it uh, really resembles other epistemic norms by being what the brain constantly um, aims to fulfill. He is governed by this norm because he prefers the brain. Uh, I say the brain because the, the, the person is not aware of that, but what the person does also is to orient towards what is easy to understand but still informative. So there is a norm of informativeness and the norm of ease of processing that seem to be combined very early on in children, for example, mm-hmm. but but is also present in non-humans and that cannot be accounted for in propositional terms. So I have really investigated this um, problem and taken also advantage of existing literature, in particular this terrific article by Cousins, 1992, and other work, similar work by Bermudez and others mm-hmm. really also accept the view that there must be a level of representation in non-humans and I argue also in humans that is based on uh, a different way of apprehending the world that is not in terms of a predication, that is no opposition between a subject and object, uh, not a proper name and a predicate, but rather and afford what people now call affordance sensings. That is a relation that ha- that an individual has to his environment, where the environment is not represented in objective terms, independent of himself, but in terms of what the, info- the environment can present uh, as opportunities or dangers. And so this notion of affordance sensing uh, as some of the kind of features that Strawson described in, in his feature-placing language, that is, uh, it includes uh, the notion of time, which is now, an, a notion of space, which is here, and uh, which uh, another thing that Strawson did not really emphasize, which is a gradient. In each of Odin's sensing, there is a gradient both of intensity and of valence. So it can be very good, uh, as a source of food, for example, or it can be a little food. And similarly for danger, it can be a big danger or a small danger. And there is a predisposition to act that is associated with that representation, which is indeed a representation, but non-conceptual and intensive. Well, one of the, I mean, your your background with, with intentionality um, yes. sort of suggests the following question. Uh, which is one of, you know, just a general feature in discussions of mental content is this idea that for something to be a representation, it has to be, in, in as, uh, as some people put it, detached from its cause. Uh, you, you, you can give a causal theory of content, but at some point the idea is that the, the representation, to, to count as a representation, um, has to be something that's 
you know capable of of misrepresenting um yes, and yes. i'm just wondering how do you how do do these affordance sensing uh how do they misrepresent or can they yes well this notion of misrepresentation is usually uh applied to a propositional representation and in that sense misrepresentation uh is equated with uh, falsity mm-hmm. but here we don't have truth versus wrong is not the norms that can be applied to affordance sensings. Affordance sensings can be felicitous or not. The, the, the danger I was thinking there was may not be there. Uh, but of course, it's extremely difficult to describe this in affordanceal terms, given that we have this wonderful propositional format to describe what happens at the affordance level. It's also the whole difficulty to characterize norms from the viewpoint of an affordance sensing system. Mm-hmm. But the affordance sensing system still has conditions of correction for his affordance sensing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the affordance can be actually followed by a reward if uh, the affordance was correctly sensed. If it was not, then there will be some form of punishment. So this is uh, a Millikan-like theological way of uh, realizing norms at the affordance sensing level. Okay, um, so in the, we've just kind of gone over the, the, first, the first part of the book, um, which continues then uh, in the second half where you focus on the concept of, of mental agency and mental action uh, as apart from, but in some sense analogous to, to physical action, you know, the usual, the usual topic of philosophy of action. Um, and you distinguish these types of actions by the different norms, um, uh, epistemic norms that apply to mental action. Uh, so maybe you can, so in chapter seven, I mean, a lot of the basics are, are laid out. Maybe you can just tell us, um, this, the, the basic view of, of mental agency that you're defending here. Well, when I distinguish uh, forms of acceptances, I think that's what you have in mind, um, where a subject can accept. And here I'm I'm considering uh, the human the human person, not not an animal, um, because an animal doesn't have any other norm at disposal beyond variations of fluency. You know, it, that's all an animal can do. It doesn't have language and he doesn't master the norms that have been trained in us through language. So um, I'm just interested in humans here in this chapter. Um, when a human needs to evaluate uh, a, a knowledge content, uh, some something that is told to him, mm-hmm. he can evaluate it epistemically or strategically. And I think this is a very important distinction to be made, and uh, very prominent philosophers seem to, to, to deny it, and I, I defend it in this particular chapter. The idea is that when you have to uh, evaluate a given proposal, let's say uh, um, a regularity, you're presented the regularity, you want to know whether it's true or false, 
well, at this point, you are just using your metacognitive system to say whether it's true or false. You, you use the evidence you have and the process of accumulation of evidence that I described in dynamic terms before to tell you, well, this is a true or false. So I am certain that it's true or I am half certain that it's true. This is something that is completely independent from any other consideration. But now comes the moment when you need to apply your knowledge to the world or to, to the, the, the evaluation you've made to the world. And now you have other considerations that come into play that are not purely epistemic, mm -hmm. which has to do with the reward schedule. You know, is it very important for me to... Uh, to give the, the correct answer, or is it unimportant? And if it's a matter of life and death, even something you are very certain of, you will not use it in certain circumstances because it's too, it's too serious if you make a mistake. Right. And so this is very important, and it's a, it's a different step. It's been studied by Coriat and Goldsmith in, uh, in two very important papers, and uh, I, I took it as an inspiration to understand what's going on here. And so the idea is that metacognition is embedded in a, a larger action directed to the world. You know, for example, you are doing your shopping and you realize that you've forgotten your shopping list. So now comes the metacognitive action moment. You need to reconstruct your list. And you need to choose the norm under which to reconstruct it. Will you aim to reconstruct the exact correct list that is according to a name of accuracy? Or do you want to rather um, have all the items that were on the list plus some uh, false, false alarm items that is to be exhaustive or not? And exhaustivity is, uh, of course, more expensive. You will spend more money by being exhaustive than by accurate. But according to the the certainty you have to be able to to remember, you will choose still the more expensive procedure. And this is in you know part of your larger action, which is to shop for food, which has nothing epistemic, particularly epistemic about it. Mm -hmm. But you can see that the metacognitive step is still playing a crucial role for the success of the larger action. And so analyzing uh, this embedding, I think, is very important to realize why it is that we retain procedural metacognition in human, in human metacognition. Why should we not go with uh, mind reading all the time? Well, the idea is that procedural metacognition gives you a very fast and frugal answer. The feeling of knowing. It tells you immediately wh what you can remember or not. And this is retained from animal uh, cognition because it's so useful and also because it's uh, entrenched in all our mental architecture. But it has a really mm. functional advantage. But now it needs to be uh, controlled by, by this other capacity which has to do with reward and which is, of, of course, uh, very important and probably also heavily re relies on feelings. But that's a distinct story from the first. Well, there's a number of epistemic issues, you know, related to this. Um, you uh, Later on in the book, you, you defend an externalist uh, justification 
Yes. Or, but before we get to that, I do want to get to that. But what, what you just said reminded me of debates in epistemology regarding the context sensitivity of um, ascriptions of knowledge. Yes. And uh, what you just said reminded me of, of, of that fact that the relative importance of, you know, if I'm, if I'm fairly certain that something is the case, I've, I've done the epistemic evaluation, but it's really, really super important that I get it right. I might not act, even though in another context, um, being pretty certain is good enough. Um, yes. And you, you do, I mean, in your definition of the neutral definition that we, that we started with, you have, you, you build in this, uh, an idea of context sensitivity. So maybe you could say something about that element of, of any account of metacognition on your view. Yes. Well, thank you. That's a beautiful question. Um, context sensitivity is an essential feature of metacognition in the evaluative sense, because what you evaluate is not a general competence. It's just your ability to remember here and now or to perceive here and now or to solve the problem here and now. And the way you do it is using all the activity-dependent cues that are generated by your performing, trying to perform the task here and now, too. So these context uh, dimensions really make you quite uh, dependent on the moment to make a prediction. And this is also, uh, of course, a matter of reliability because you could be completely wrong with your competence in general, mm -hmm. given that this competence itself, we know as theorists that it can be affected by lots of different things like uh, an illness, like... Uh, a certain emotional state, like uh, uh, certain aspects of the environments that you don't encounter frequently and so on. So context is really built into metacognition. So what I like about Stanley Jackson's work on, on, on the attribution of knowledge mm -hmm. is that he, he really uh, is retrieving in different ways this notion by working on the examples of the bank is closed and so on, uh, and if it's so important that you can lose a lot of money by not going to the bank right. now uh, when the when you when it's still open, then later when you still believe it will be open, but not completely, you know, even sure, but not it's not complete. It's not the demonstrative truth, right? right. So um, he retrieves these very facts about about. Uh, procedural metacognition, which needs to be at the heart of any form of evaluation. So even a meta-representational evaluation needs itself to be pondered uh, uh, for its weight and for the truth it, it really uh, captures. And here, too, there is a form of procedural metacognition that is surfacing again. So we are never completely out of it. And that's my, my mo most recent work is... Uh, is trying to work on this, how meta-representations themselves uh, encapsulate against, of course, uh, the theories of meta-representation that we have in the market, mm -hmm. but meta-representations themselves, when they are accepted, need to be accepted against uh, evaluative norms. 
and these evaluative norms, even when they are higher norms, and this is really the brand new thing I'm doing now, even higher norms need to take uh, their grounding in lower level norms. But training, of course, allows us to do that. We can be trained to use our low-level norms to perform high-level work. So let's get to the, uh, the, what I mentioned before about uh, justification. So you, yeah. have a, you have a chapter which is, which is devoted to externalism versus internalist views of, of uh, epistemic justification. Um, and you reject, you, you, ex, you endorse the externalist uh, view, um, although you reject two, two externalist strategies, um, an evolutionary strategy and then a reductive strategy in favor of a third strategy um, um, in which uh, metacognitive correctness, uh, as you put it, tracks a sort of dynamic norm. You call it the dynamic strategy. So maybe you could say uh, say something about um, out, about the uh, the role of justification here and your defense of the external and externalist view over an internalist view. Well, I conducted an experiment with my student Anna Lusuan, where we presented uh, uh, a task of change blindness to subjects to, to participants. And uh, this uh, task was uh, we the, the people were asked to say for how long they believe or uh, they sense that the stimulus has changed and noticed by them. So it's a, it's a metacognitive task of indicating the delay of error, so to speak, in their answer, in their detection of the change. And in a group of participants, we said that they were actually doing better because we reduced artificially by, by an algorithm, you know, the interval they were actually at. And in the other group, we just did the reverse. We increased it. Hmm. And what we found in their uh, feelings of, uh, of the delay, which is a way of measuring their detection error, we found that they were quite sensitive to the relative difficulty they had experienced. That is, the more difficult uh, were indeed seen as lo- having re- required more delay than the less difficult. But uh, there was this difference in calibration. That is, the, the, the base rate they were using to appreciate their confidence was displaced high, either to, the, to higher confidence or to lower confidence. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So it means that the environment can really take hold of our calibration and modify it substantially. And I think that's exactly what educational systems do. Some educational systems like uh, the U.S. system is playing on overconfidence, and it's been found in the, in the empirical data that actually it encourages learning. Whereas, unfortunately, in the French system, children are underconfident because their teachers repeat again and again that they are not up to their own standards. Well, there's certainly a lot of very interesting social implications of, of these you know, manipulations. But we, I, I want to. We're we're getting close to the end of our of our hour, and there were a couple of issues that I did want to get to regarding um, your assessment of some of the disorders associated with schizophrenia, um, as well as 
some very interesting new, uh, new to me anyway, work on the idea of embodied communication and uh, gesture, gestures as having a specific metacognitive function. Uh, so let I, I think perhaps uh, hearing something about um, mental agency and it's it's uh, the disorders in schizophrenia might be might be a good way to to wrap up well it's um it's a complicated matter and i'm not sure that i will be able to re- really um convey all the implications of of uh, this impairment concerning metacognition but the idea is that uh delusions of control that is the idea that you're being controlled by others or sometimes that you indeed yourself are able to control others, as well as the, the thought insertion, that is the idea that people put your put their own thoughts in your brain and you're not really free to think what you want, uh, are both consequences of an impairment that has to do with what is called in the in in uh, scientific terms control sensitivity. That is, it's not it's not exactly metacognition itself. It's not uh, I, I should rather say the monitoring of your mental activity, but it's rather the relationship between a correct monitoring of your mental activity and an incorrect, incorrect decision or strategy, strategic decision in the sense I uh, explained earlier, um, that is being impaired. That is, you are feeling correctly what where you are, but you are unable to use your actions in a way that are coherent with this monitoring. So it's called control sensitivity. It's a problem of executive capacity, not a problem in uh, appreciating your ability. And indeed, it must be very difficult for people to, at points, monitor what they are saying and still be unable to even speak about it, report about it in a way that is coherent with what they feel. So it's it's a, a phenomenon that has been also discussed in other domains as being related to a dopamine problem. Mm-hmm. And a dopamine problem uh, indeed is related to a strategic and not an epistemic acceptance. It really uh, triggers aberrant saliences, as you uh, you would say, or impairments in how context should influence action uh, and and hence selection of the right action program. So just to, you know, in summary, this is the idea. So even the appreciation of how rational you are in doing something cannot be really properly expressed even verbally because of this disconnection between monitoring and controlling what your own mental activity and also your physical activity, of course. You don't go in a lot into any of the sort of neurobiological mechanisms. I mean, you do mention, you did mention it a, a little bit, but um, so as a, as a final question, what, um, to what extent do you think that neuroscience um, may adjudicate between these two different views of, of metacognition? I mean, one has a, a dual system versus a single system. I mean, that's that's often one way in which people will say, well, if you've got a dual system, you should see different, actual different circuits. 
And well, um, so, so the bro- the broader question, of course, brings us back to the very, the very first, the way we started with the the idea that um, uh, there may be a certain methodological autonomy of philosophy from from science, but that. Uh, um, it's not, you know, it's you know, Quine was a little bit too radical in his in in having philosophy disappear. Uh, that there is maintains a sort of autonomy there, and I'm just wondering between the psychological level that you're talking about of of metacognition, and then the neuroscience level, how do how do you see the relationship there? Is there also a similar sort of? Are you more towards the autonomous side, or, or you know? <laughs> Methodological autonomy to me doesn't entail that the philosophers do not have to know about what happens in the sciences. And in particular here, I would not have to choose between psychological evidence and neuroscientific evidence mm-hmm. because they converge very nicely. And, and I think it's a privilege of the philosopher actually to say so because uh, funnily enough, psychologists do not read neuroscience, actually psychologists of certain quarters, I should say, mm-hmm. don't read neuroscience because they don't think that neuroscience will be refined enough to um, reflect their own, their, their own work, which may be true also in certain areas. But uh, what I, I can tell you is that as a philosopher, I really was absolutely fascinated by the fact that what metacognitive psychologists and neuroscientists are talking about is mental action. And of course, they never use this this vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So this is the autonomy of philosophy. I bring in the subject matter of action, and I think it allows us to make wonderful generalizations that they cannot make because they are not, uh, they don't have this methodology available to them. We have concepts in philosophy, and we can use them to really sense the limits of what is being claimed in a, in sciences in the sciences. Now, should I should I choose between neuroscience and psychology? I don't think there is any basis for choosing other than the actual scientific quality of each study. You know, it's mm-hmm. true that when studies in neuroscience are merely using uh, anatomical uh, evidence to make claims. Uh, I think this is really not good enough because uh, now there are precise uh, processes that are, have to be, you know, put forward as as doing the causal work. So uh, in that case, I don't think that uh, uh, anatomic evidence is sufficient. But if you can combine psychological evidence with anatomical evidence then really it's uh, you 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 bring things to a unity that is very very uh, welcome okay um well i think we're we're about uh we we've we've hit our limit here um but i did want to ask to to close off our interview um what is your next project are you following uh, following this one up with a with by extending some of the material here, or are you turning yes. to something different? Or yes, indeed, I am right now. Um, I, I'm working on a European uh, funded project about metacognitive diversity, 
which is uh, the comparison in uh, metacognitive abilities and motivations across cultures. Mm. And this is very, very interesting work. Uh, we have already uh, several anthropologists who are interested in uh, in really uh, exploring this. And it's really uh, my pride as a philosopher to have really made them uh, aware that such uh, a domain is open for them. Because until now, there was some work on diversity in mind reading, but nothing at all. Right. Metacognitive diversity. And I think it's uh, philosophically very relevant. Uh, if we want to produce epistemology that is really educated by science, as many epistemologists now aim to do, then we we need to acquire knowledge that we cannot find yet in the sciences and encourage scientists to work for philosophers. I mean, I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, way of looking at oneself as a philosopher to ask scientists to uh, address our own problems in their, with their own methods, of course. Right. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and I, I look forward to reading um, and maybe talking with you about that um, in, the, in the future. I hope so. Uh, well, uh, we do need to close now. So um, thank you very much for, for your time. And um, uh, I wish you luck with the, uh, with the uh, diversity stuff. Thank you very much. I mean, thank you also for inviting me. It was a great moment to, to speak to you. And I really thank you for your very careful reading. I'm very impressed. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Joël Proust, a director of research at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. We've been talking about her new book, Philosophy of Metacognition, Mental Agency and Self-Awareness, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.